21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, it brings me uh, great joy to to have uh, a special guest on. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself in a minute. Um, it's great that our, our schedules meshed. Uh, he is right now nine hours behind me in Cyprus, Texas, uh, as I sit in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So I'm going to let my guest introduce himself and say a few words uh, to the audience. So go ahead. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Eric Scheniger. I am a former science teacher and principal, and now I am a senior fellow with the International Center for Leadership in Education. Uh, I've written a few books, but uh, I think my real claim to fame is how I shifted my mindset and helped begin the process of transforming a school where we really didn't understand what truly was possible in terms of how we can provide world-class opportunities for our kids. And that was New Milford High School. Correct. And where was the location? Uh, New Milford is about 10 minutes west of Upper Manhattan. So it's in New Jersey, right outside New York City. Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned your, your books. I think you have one coming out, which is called Brand Dead, and that's uh, ED as in uh, education, I assume, right? Yep, that's coming out in uh, April 2017. Yeah, and then you, your, your other book was Un, uh, Uncommon Learning, and then uh, Digital Leadership, which Daniel Pink uh, gave a nice little um, shout out about. Um, the other book, Communicating and Connecting with Social Media. And the uh, fifth book is What Principles Need to Know About Teaching and Learning Science. Of those five books, which do you think was the kind of the most difficult for you to write? Uh, I would say uh, Brand Ed, the, the most recent one, was the most difficult just because digital leadership and uncommon learning, you know, really focused, uh, provided a great lens as to the work that we did at New Milford High School. I, I think the longer we are disconnected from a school that we tend to lose our authentic voice. At least that's my opinion, yeah. you know, cause I think in a, in a world where we are just uh, overwhelmed with access to information that we really want practical, practical, tangible ideas and strategies that we can implement right away. So I'm not saying the book's not good that the readers will decide on that, but, uh, it is much more difficult for me to write uh, now that I've been two years removed from the principalship. And how has your call to action? So you took the the leap into your new role. So again, can you just repeat the name of your current uh, organization? Uh, I am a senior fellow with the International Center for Leadership in Education, and the the transition was difficult. Uh, you know. My father was a principal for 
28 years at the same school in New Jersey, oh, wow. actually in the town where uh, they make M&Ms. Oh, cool. So, you know, when I became an administrator, I really thought that that was my calling and that I was going to be at New Milford High School until I retired. Uh, and I really thought that. But as we began to innovate and as we experienced results aligned to our innovation, you know, we started hosting visits from high-performing schools across the northeastern United States, as well as educators that traveled from the Netherlands and Switzerland to New Jersey to figure out, you know, how are you getting results? Going, bring your own device, using social media, you know, micro credentials, uh, giving teachers time during the school day to learn job embedded growth model. Like having one third of your population classified special needs and a building that was built in 1928. So we hosted these visits, but we also hosted organizations who wanted to see again, you know, what really innovation from a practical sense looked like. And one of those organizations was ICLE. And when they originally made me an offer to come and consult for them, I immediately said no. Yeah. Uh, but then I, you know, listened and thought, you know, the whole idea was how can we take what we did at New Milford High School and scale it? How, how can we present these ideas that all educators could benefit from, you know, regardless of the size of the school, the location, uh, or the population that the school serve? And I took, I would say, a calculated risk. Uh, it, it was not as well thought out as I planned from an emotional standpoint, because I can tell you this, when I made that decision in June 2014, I cried like a baby. And I have no problem admitting that because that's how much I love my school, my kids, my staff. You know, leadership is not about one person. It's not about what you do with a title. You know, leadership is about action. And I think I was very emotional because our success uh, was our success. It mm-hmm. was because the students, the, the teachers, the other administrators, central office, my community, who all embraced different and better. And, you know, leaving that where, you know, that situation where I was constantly inspired through that work, now I get to be inspired by work I see all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's different because of the disconnect from the kids, but uh, you know it's still being able to take the core values and what we were able to accomplish at New Milford and sort of adapt that to the different situations where I now work uh, all over the world. And when you immediately said no, when they offered you that opportunity, what within yourself made you say no straight away? Was it fear? Was it fear of the unknown? Was it fear of giving up what you had? Was it fear of leaving the great team that you worked with? Was it a combination of things? But how would you define that? I think it was a culmination of all those elements. But but I think when I originally thought about it, the the, the, uh, risk outweighed the potential return. Yeah. And I, I think I came around because... I'll be honest, you know, I didn't have as much confidence in myself as ICLE and my my current boss had in me. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, the number one enemy we face is 
not those traditional uh, challenges such as you know politicians, legislation, laws, mandates, time, lack of money. The, the number one adversary we face rests on our shoulders, and it is our mindset. And more often than not, our mind be, is fixed. You know, when you think Absolutely. about Carol Dweck's work, yeah. fixed versus growth mindset, and our brains are really wired to protect. Think mm-hmm. Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. You know, we need to, you know, eat and drink and sleep and. You love the people you work with, um, and things are going well. So why would you even think about messing with that? Yeah, yeah. That's when you when you talk about that being emotional when you made that decision and and crying. Is I was walking with my wife when I made the decision to consult, um, and we were walking across the street to the school, and I just had this kind of moment where I'd been contemplating it, and I just basically said, "I'm doing it." And I made the decision to do it. Um, uh, Eric, I think you cut out there. Let's cut our video. I'm just going to cut this part out. Okay. Eric? Got it. Uh, yep. Okay. I'm here. I can hear you. Which was the last part you heard me saying? I heard you, I heard everything. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm just going to... Uh, my video is not even coming up right now. Okay. Okay. Right so um, I had made that decision, and it was a really emotional decision as well. Um, I, I was scared, uh, you know, lots of things as you, as you described. But I think in looking back at your TED Talk in Burnsville in 2014, you were working at uh, New Milford at the time, and you described uh, and went into detail the success that you had, um, you and your team had, with making a difference at, at New Milford. Uh, you talked about the uh, aha moment. So what was your aha moment where you began to shift from a, a fixed mindset to a growth mindset in terms of what social media could could do for a school and, and for uh, leadership? Yeah, I mean, my backstory, I guess, is relatively intriguing because uh, many people see me as an evangelist, big-time supporter, champion for social media and technology in schools and that was not my reality uh i was totally against social media i swore i would never ever use social media uh because i don't have time and it's not going to help me be a better professional so prior to 2009 i was on i had no social media presence and uh it took a student first telling me that the culture of our school was so, uh, I guess, rigid and flexible. You know, he used the word school is like a jail. Yeah. And that kind of got me to rethink initially what direction are we going? And why do our kids think this? We were just totally disconnected from the reality of what our kids perceived school to be. And that very weekend, uh, I actually just happened to read the Sunday newspaper, and there was an article about Twitter. And as I read this article, that was my, uh, the light bulb went on, my epiphany, 
where I saw finally how social media could help me be a better school leader, how it could help me be a better educator, how it could help me build better relationships with my stakeholders, my family, my students, other teachers. And uh, the blindfold came off. And I think that my mindset had been so obstructed with my personal views and perception of technology and social media that I was never able to uh, act to pursue opportunities that were inherent in these tools. So uh, after those two moments, uh, I learned how to unlearn and relearn. I discovered an array of opportunity. Uh, I saw schools, educators, uh, districts, kids doing amazing things with technology, and my school wasn't doing any of it. So that's sort of when I had that change, and then it really was a, a lot of intrinsically driven learning on my behalf, and then in turn working with uh, my teachers and students to recreate uh, a culture that worked better for our kids. And you said in the process, you learned two valuable things, which this is again from your from your TED talk. So I'm going to put the link to your TED talk in the show notes. But you you emphasize two things that it's essential to a give up control and b place trust in the hands of your students. Um, have you learned anything more to add to that list in particular? Well, uh, you know, student agency was huge for us. And I, and I think that was, uh, you know, the, the real missing element. You know, traditionally schools work great for the adults because we focus on conformity, control, compliance, and rules. And because we focus on the three C's and the one R, we, we lose our focus. We lose our way as to what's really, really important. And that is... Are we meeting the needs of not only our number one stakeholder, but our ultimate boss, which is our kids? It doesn't matter what type of school we work in. We work for kids. And I think that when we looked at agency and focused more on student voice, choice, advocacy, it, that was, that, again, that, that solid foundation for our new direction. But technology gave us a fantastic lens to look at our core practice and really reflect on that broader foundation. You know, as we began to integrate social media, as we went bring your own device, the first school in New Jersey almost seven years ago, as we began to do things with technology, we started looking at our assessments, how we observed and evaluated each other, our professional development, how we graded, and I think the best outcome besides the student agency piece was that technology made us discover we had to create better assessments. We had to work on our instructional design. We had to not only provide innovative ways to grow, professionally, but we had to make sure professional development was aligned to accountability. We had to stop focusing on just letters and numbers 
and really make the grading process more about learning. We learn through social media uh, how ineffective our homework practices were. But the biggest thing for me as a principal was the fact that I had no idea what was actually going on in my classrooms. And that is key because when we think about technology, we need to provide support, good feedback to our teachers, and in turn, our teachers provide good feedback to our kids as to whether or not you know, there are enhanced learner outcomes aligned to the integration of technology. I can honestly say as a principal, I really did not know what was going on in my classrooms because I wasn't in classrooms enough, both for formal observations and informal walkthroughs. We changed all those elements, Andy. And I think that, you know, when people look at us, they automatically think technology, innovation. That wasn't why we were successful. We were successful because we were finally honest with things that were broken in our school. And we worked better to build that foundation where it wasn't technology on one side and on the other curriculum, instruction, assessment, professional development on the other. We saw technology as a ubiquitous component whose role was to support and enhance everything we were doing. But technology actually put us in a position to uh, be, be able to ex access information. Information, whether it was about tech or non-tech, and our goal was to take that information, turn it into new knowledge, and act in order to improve our learning culture. Yeah, and I, I think that, I again, it sounds as though that you... When you're looking, you, you say your, your boss is your students. And how true is that, right? That you, you need to, to do everything you can to focus on them and their needs. And I loved your Starbucks Google example from your TED Talk, uh, where you're, you were basically saying if it's successful for Starbucks, the, the, the environment that they have created, and the environment that Google has created, how can it not be successful in school? Um, so again, embedding technology along with redesigning the environment. And you go on to say in your TED Talk about you, the importance of makerspace. Um, can you go into a little bit, say a little bit about the importance of makerspace in schools and, and the role of technology in that? Yeah, I think when we there's so much pressure. I mean, think about just what happened recently. Uh, the annual release of PISA scores. So you know what? All over the world, we are driven by where our countries rank, how well we test our kids, and whether we're meeting their needs. And I think therein lies the problem, is we're so focused on testing our kids that we quickly forget those students in our population who don't care about our tests, who don't want to go to a university, who are not motivated by grades. And that portion of our population has gotten, you know, sort of lost. So the makerspace, and I have to give credit where credit is due, not my idea, Great leaders, in my opinion, surround themselves with people that are smarter than them. Yeah. And I'm not saying I was great, but I did a great job 
at hiring people that were smarter than me. And one of those people was Laura Fleming. And when I hired her, I knew about her work through social media. And I basically said, you know, Laura, we need to do something with this space. The library kids aren't coming. They're not reading like they should. You know, it's a ghost town. She came up with the idea of the makerspace. And 3D printers, Lego tables, snap circuits. Kids got to learn with their hands. And what did we ultimately do? We unlocked the potential of our kids. We showed them that learning is not linear. It's not a uh, standard. It doesn't have to be a standardized process. It's all these qualities that can't be measured by a standardized test, such as, you know, perseverance, creativity, dedication, compassion, empathy. Uh, And the makerspace was able to become that catalyst for our forgotten population. And I think that when you go back and really look at those defining moments of our transformation, you know, the most defining moment was when, you know, we let our kids tinker, invent, create, to learn, to use real-world tools, to do real-world work. Because more than ever, even though our society is becoming more and more digital, our trades are prevalent now as they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. We need to create the next generation of students that have the skills to be plumbers, carpenters, electricians, but we also have to prepare our kids for trades that are going to be severely uh, be, you know, uh, be impacted by evolving technology. And I think that all those elements really uh, showcase the importance of having makerspaces in schools. Yeah, and I guess student student voice would really reflect um, the importance of that because kids love maker spaces. And my background is in physical education. And before I started consulting, a lot of my work was in uh, helping uh, schools and PE departments create learning environments in PE that allow kids to take action on being physically active for life when they're outside of PE which means providing them with relevant choices that they can act on. And makerspaces definitely, when they're set up the right way, allow kids to take action and initiative to use their hands and be creative and innovative outside the walls of the school. So it's setting them up for success in that respect. I could not agree more. Yeah. Um, this might be a nice time to segue over now. Uh, in the uh, pre-show, I had you listen to the Margaret Heffernan audio clip, and I guess I, I chose this audio clip for you um, because, again, I, I think of of you, you know, when you were in your administrative role at New Milford, and then moving on to your new role, and and a lot of what you do. I don't want to say that it's selling, uh, it's selling ideas because you believe in it so passionately, but um, how do you convert people that are resistant, you know, and, and how do you help them switch and, and flip their thinking to embrace this style of education? And to me, it's all about the meaning of work. 
Um, the Margaret Heffernan audio clip is from the TED Radio Hour, so I just want to give a shout-out to TED Radio Hour. They've given me permission to use these clips. Um, but I'm going to have you listen now to it. It's just under a minute. And then I'm going to ask you to uh, just share what resonates with you the most. So I'm going to play the audio clip now. Okay, Eric? Yep, I'm ready. Okay. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with. And I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target? You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. You know, in the work you do, your first line of reinforcements are the educators, you know, and ensuring that they are they understand the significance that they play in the lives of those who they teach in bringing your message and your vision, your beautiful vision forward, how do you, how do you talk about the meaning of work with them? You know, I chose that clip just to, you know, see how, what resonates with you in that regard. So. Oh, there's so many things, you know, the, the driving goal, you know, is learning, learning for our kids so that no matter what world they go into after they leave our schools, that they will be able to find their passion and have the skills, the knowledge, the disposition to succeed. But in order to create a vibrant learning culture, it's not just about vision. It is about vision to action, to reflection, to evaluation, to constant improvement. And I think the, the glue that holds everything together when we think about goals and outcomes and success is relationships. And if we really want people to love the work, appreciate the work, model the work, and be able to deal with the constant ups and downs of the work, we have to figure out how we can build better relationships with our students, with our staff, with our parents, uh, with the greater community. Because when we want to bring out their best, it's relationships that are incumbent upon how we communicate how we collaborate, how we learn, how we deal with failure. And I can go on and on again, but you know, relationships underpin success. Without relationships in place, it, it, it's very hard to keep a focus on a driving goal and get people to intrinsically uh, 
So much energy goes into buy-in. You know, we got to get people to buy in to innovation, to buy in to bring your own technology or one-to-one. When relationships are in place, people see the value of the change. They're changing not because they have to, but because they want to. And they're changing because they want to, knowing that they aren't going to be reprimanded uh, if the change doesn't go well. And I think that embracement of ideas, of learning, leads to empowerment and ownership. And not just agency among students, but agency among the adults as well. And I think when the relationships are in place, agency flourishes on behalf of the entire organization. And that is how you bring out the best in people every single day. And it, it speaks volumes. What you just said speaks volumes um, about your in your TED talk when you said your the free range learning environments because free range learning environments apply to you as a leader to teachers and to students to all stakeholders in the organization and it really underpins your pillars your your seven pillars of digital leadership so communications public relations branding professional learning student engagement opportunities rethinking learning environments that is all about relationships and trust when you get when you filter right down to the bare essence of it. it that's really what it is. I mean, you know, we look at our work. We want to, you know, do what we do better. And I think as we begin to build relationships, it still is contingent upon that vital face-to-face in, in how we uh, communicate both uh, through talk, through nonverbal, but also it's how do we begin to embrace the digital world and, and think about relationship building through that lens as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you would definitely have experienced this, but it's been such a rewarding journey for me on, on Twitter and uh, so many incredible opportunities um, that have sprung up in my you know, my life as a result of being a, a socially connected educator. And, um, you know, I've, I've been able to, to keynote speak at some conferences uh, around the world and, you know, just some powerful moments where these people who you've connected with on Twitter, you meet face to face and, and it's like you've known them for a long time in some cases, you know, and I've uh, developed some really solid friendships, um, that I know will last for years. Um, and I'm sure that you've experienced the same thing. Can you, can you um, just kind of sum up how, uh, you know, you, we've spoken a lot about the professional value of Twitter, but on a personal level, how, how you've grown and developed through the relationships that you've formed uh, being a socially connected educator? Yeah, I, I think social media has was a huge step in breaking down the silos, uh, the silo that was my school, was my district. And when I think about what I really needed, you know, education, especially leadership, it, it is a very, very lonely place, especially when you're a younger administrator and you don't have those relationships built. You know, I was in a different part of New Jersey. I came to New Milford and I didn't know anyone. 
So those relationships that you build over time through face-to-face events just weren't there for me. And I think what I needed more than anything else was not just access to resources, ideas, strategies, but I needed the support. I needed the feedback. I needed to you know, be with my people, meaning those that were going through the same challenges that I was having. And social media just became this buffet of everything that I needed. And I could pick and choose at times when it's convenient for me. You know, it's all about working smarter, not harder, and getting better results. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yes. Social media taught me that I didn't have to have all the ideas. I didn't have to have all the answers. I didn't even have to have all the questions. But I could now choose to have access to all that information. And that was great. But I think what's more important is what I eventually did with that information to turn it into new knowledge and actually act to improve the culture of my building. And it all, again, comes down to relationships. Mm-hmm. I form professional relationships with people outside my comfort zone outside my state, outside my country. And those relationships were built, strengthened, and redefined by the connections that we made to one another and our work. Some of my best professional friends have now become my best personal friends, and they are the ones that I had met on Twitter years ago. So I think that, again, it's a nice full circle back to, you know, what is that driving goal? Uh, How does great connectedness align to that goal? And how do we bring out their best? Social media, I think, helped bring out the best in people all over the world. And once I was exposed to that, it just became this constant motivator and source of inspiration for me to try to do better for my school, my kids. Have you read uh, Seth Godin's Finding Your Tribe? Yes. Yeah. yeah but I mean... I, I, and, I, and I also read Lynchpin by yeah. Seth Godin, yeah. which really spoke to me and my staff, you know, finding our, our own art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his work has been influential to me. Um, This uh, will be a good time, Eric, to uh, go to uh, the the hot seat speed round. Okay. And and I think you're ready for it. Um, So essentially what I'm going to do here, this is a a new format I'm using. Usually I just end end my podcast with uh, giving my uh, guests uh, a hot seat question and uh, just... uh, kind of just listen to their great insight and wisdom to conclude uh, the episode. So this uh, speed round is I'm going to give you five things to answer. They might be sentence finishers or questions, but um, so five different things that that you will answer um, succinctly. And then 
at the end of those things to kind of elaborate or to dig deep into one of those things that resonates the most, leaving people with one piece of advice about that area, okay? Okay. Okay, so here we go. Ding, ding. Uh, number one is, uh, do you prefer to learn in a slow-paced or fast-paced environment? Both. Really depends on the situation. And again, it depends on the information, but I am all about adapting and evolving. So it really depends on what the topic is. Okay, excellent. Uh, number two, who was your biggest mentor? I'll give you a time frame here. Uh, your biggest mentor from high school and beyond? Well, I've kind of already let the cat out of the bag on that one. It was my father, who was an amazing leader in his own right, elementary principal. He helped ground me and gave me practical advice. But more importantly, he was always there to listen to me. And to this day, he is still mentoring me. And is he retired now? You said he was 28 years at the same school? Oh, yeah. He, he retired many, many years ago. Okay, excellent. Uh, number three, your biggest frustration is? Oh, my biggest frustration is... For me, it people, was... It, for people me, that jump to conclusions yeah. and don't know the entire backstory or all the facts, or everything that went into why or how a decision was made, or an action was undertaken. Okay, uh, number four, um, a little sentence finisher here, um, gratitude is? Gratitude is paying it forward. Beautiful, love it. And the last one, um, if someone was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what would the title be? How I Succeeded Because of Everyone Else. Lovely. Okay. So I'll do a, a little refresher. Then you're going to pick one of those areas to um, just dig a little deeper with and to offer a little bit of advice uh, in that area. So the first one was... Uh, learning in a slow-paced or fast-paced environment. The second one was uh, your biggest mentor. Number three was your biggest frustration. Uh, number four, um, gratitude is. And number five, the title of your book. So which one do you want to go into to finish the episode? Number five. Excellent. You know, when you think about success and you think about leadership, you know, leadership is about action. Not position, not title, power. And I think that when we think about success, we look at that one person. We look at what he or she has accomplished. You know, we see it all the time in professional sports and in entertainment. But, but when we really pull away the layers, it, it's all the, the supporting cast. And, and I wouldn't even say supporting cast. The, everyone else is the foundation for our success. And I think that when I reflect on my work up to this point, and I could pick apart every single aspect of what I've done, whether it was as a principal, as a writer, as a speaker, as a father, as a husband, you know, I'm always looking to other people for 
their advice, their actions, their knowledge. And I can say that I've become a better learner from others. And I don't want to mention and drop names because it would be unfair because so many people have contributed to my growth as a leader, a father, a husband, a learner. And I think that all of our success is giving credit where credit's due. Sometimes it might get a little convoluted or lost in the shuffle when you know we think about what we tweet and what we write about and that it's our ideas and our work. But I can tell you right now, Andy, it's just I'm very blessed to have a fantastic support network from across the world. And it's thousands and thousands of people that have helped me constantly seek to become better at everything I do each and every day. Yeah, that's that's great advice and uh, just a great message for people to hear because oftentimes people – there's a great book by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. Um, I'll put it in the show notes, but he, he talks about the, I guess, the default setting that many people have that um, puts them in a place where they are afraid to reveal their weaknesses and admit that they need others. And he talks about that idea of calling in the reinforcements and that the very best people at whatever it is they do that's their number one go-to tactic and strategy is to call in reinforcements to support their own growth and development in the process they make other people better at what they do but they are also on the receiving end of those blessings so um i want to thank you very much eric for taking the time i know you got a busy schedule i was looking at your your engagement starting in 2017, and you're all over the place. Uh, it must be so rewarding for you. Um, but I wish you um, profound luck and success on your continued journey. Andy, thank you, and thank you for the time today. Okay, I'm just going to um, sign off here and then just stay on just for a one-minute debrief. Um, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, the episode. Um, I appreciate it, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.